This is KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. We also stream live at kzyx.org. This is Mendocino County Public Broadcasting listener-supported community radio. Stay tuned now for a special program, the Mendocino College Symposium Lecture Series. Welcome to our second Mendocino College Symposium Community Lecture Series. I'm Nika Aguirre, and I teach history for the college. Our speaker today is Professor Chris Innick, who teaches ecology, field biology, soil science, and environmental science at Mendocino College and Sonoma State. His talk today is titled, Understanding Our New Wildfire Crisis, Can We Tame the Blazing Beast? Listeners can find Professor Innick's slides and a list of four further reading at www.mendocino.edu symposium. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for uh, coming along. We're going to talk about uh, uh, wildfires uh, today. So uh, if I was giving this talk in person, I would start by asking for a show of hands to see how many of you uh, have felt in recent years like the higher powers are mad at us and are trying to punish us with fire uh, because we've had some pretty serious fires in recent years, obviously, and our region in particular has been hit especially hard. And I'll show you some numbers. I probably don't even need to. You've uh, obviously lived through all of this, but uh, it apparently is uh, changing our reputation in some circles as well, because uh, I recently found uh, uh, this anoded map of California, and you can see uh, us up here circled in red, uh, somewhere north of Wine and Rednecks and south of Big Ass Trees is the land of fire. All right, so that's us. So somebody who put together this map, uh, uh, you know, thinks that we are uh, represented by fire more than anything else. And uh, hard to completely disagree with that. It's been a rough few years. Uh, this year, of course, has been the worst. We've seen uh, almost four and a half million acres uh, statewide burn. So in a single fire season. And uh, this amounts to more than 4% of the state's entire land area in a single year, in a single season. And five of the six largest fires on record in California have occurred this year as well. And that, by the way, is a record that goes back to the 1930s. And we just don't have reliable data before that. But nonetheless, to have five of the six worst happen uh, in a single fire season is pretty remarkable. Okay, 2020 stands out here. The total burn acreage this year is more than double the previous record, and that previous record was set in 2018. So we have a fairly ominous trend here. If you look at this uh, five-year trend line, five-year average trend line, you can see that uh, we're on an upward march when it comes to statewide burn acreage. Okay, obviously, there's variability year to year, depends on the weather and that. Depends on whether or not we have uh, a large number of fire starts this year. We had the big lightning storm, uh, but the overall background pattern is unmistakable. Okay? It's going up. And uh, our region, as I said, has been especially hard hit. Okay, We've seen three of the five largest fires in, on record uh, happen uh, within basically Mendocino, Lake Sonoma, and Napa counties. And I'm going to define that as our region for this talk. So those counties plus uh, the portions of neighboring counties that were touched by those same fires. So uh, we can claim three of the five records, including the number one uh, record, the August complex this summer, which burned over a million acres. Okay, first time in uh, recorded history in California. And uh, we also hold the number two spot, that was the 2018 ranch fire, and the number five spot, the LNU fire, uh, also uh, earlier this summer. 
Uh, if you look at the um, uh, damages, uh, pretty substantial, more than 2.3 million acres in this area have burned just since 2015. So very, very active set of fire years here. Uh, more than 15,000 structures have been destroyed and most tragically, 52 lives have been lost, okay, just in the last six fire seasons and just in our region. So pretty remarkable. Uh, if we zoom up to space and look down on our region, we see an interesting pattern that emerges. Okay, notice here that each of the individual uh, burn scars of these large recent fires uh, piece together like the pieces of a puzzle to form this massive contiguous burn area. Uh, there's a few large fires that don't fit into that. Okay, we've got the uh, Redwood Fire here, 2017. We've got the um, River Fire here, 2018 and the Wallbridge fire this year that don't quite touch uh, that contiguous burn area, but the other fire is pieced together and they create this contiguous burn scar uh, that is roughly 70 times the size of San Francisco. So truly massive. And there isn't a road that runs along, that, along the long axis of that uh, burn area, but uh, you could parallel it driving along the I-505 and I-5 freeways through the Central Valley and uh, if you did, you'd be paralleling it for roughly two and a half hours and 160 miles. Okay, so this thing is massive. Uh, you know, this is bigger than some New England states. And this is all burn area that accumulated just in the last uh, six years. Okay, pretty remarkable. Uh, I, I, the media has done a pretty good job of covering the human impacts of these fires. So. I want to shed a little light on the impacts on local ecological communities and also on local conservation lands. So let's start there. So in that combined burn area, uh, we basically have seen just in the last several years, uh, nearly all of Mendocino National Forest burn. Uh, also nearly all of the uh, uh, Berryessa Snow Mountain National Monument. And uh, by my likely incomplete count, uh, it looks like at least three national forests, four state wildlife areas, seven federal wilderness areas, three University of California field station properties, five state parks or forests, nine county parks or regional parks, and about a dozen public or private nature preserves have also burned in that time, okay, just six years. Uh, so are you guys crying at this point yet? Uh, well, you're not alone, okay? Smokey the bear is also crying at this point because it turns out that he had part of the story wrong. Okay, he told us that suppressing all wildfires was a good thing, but in fact, uh, the fact that we've suppressed so many small fires over the years has allowed fuel loads to build up. Basically, uh, uh, in between the, the trees out there in the forest, um, we get lots of young trees and shrubs that fill in. And they, this is all fuel. When, when the vegetation dries out uh, in the summer, particularly of a drought year, as you've had many of recently, uh, that all becomes fuel. So just the act of suppressing those fires all those years uh, ultimately uh, staged the uh, situation we have now. And at least that's a big part of it. Uh, the other part of it is climate warming. I'm going to talk about that uh, in the second half of my talk. But uh, so essentially, uh, Smokey the Bear misled us on this point, and now we have to come to hopefully a more nuanced understanding of fire. All right, fire can do terrible things, as we've seen, but it also does a lot of ecologically beneficial things, okay, of which uh, reducing fuel loads and suppressing uh, future fires is clearly one. Uh, so let's talk about these for a moment here. So fires are important in uh, uh, recycling nutrients. 
Okay, they'll take uh, logs and litter on the forest floor and convert it into plant available nutrients, clearly important. Uh, they can help control pests and diseases. So uh, we may have outbreaks of uh, insects or various other uh, uh, pest and disease agents otherwise. So fire provides that service. Uh, by thinning the plants, thinning the density of trees, say, it reduces competition between plants. And as you can imagine, the soil out there can only store so much water. And uh, if you're putting more and more vegetation in that space without adding more water, uh, that's increasing competition for water. And this turns out to be a significant uh, reason that we've seen so much tree mortality in recent years. Hey, there's too many straws uh, for that limited supply of water and uh, lack of fire has allowed that to happen in large part. Uh, reduced fuels, I mentioned, uh, create a diversity of habitats. So typically when fires burn across an area, uh, it'll burn with varying intensities. Some areas will burn more often than others. And this creates a, a, a diversity of different habitats, different successional states, and uh, you know, different wildlife species depend on those different habitats. So this has the effect of increasing biodiversity. And then finally, fires can also stimulate the growth of plants. In fact, there are some plants uh, in our native flora that literally depend on fire to reproduce. Okay, I'll give you some examples here. So some of our native pines, as well as uh, giant sequoia, which doesn't grow quite in our region, but is native to California, produce what are called serotonous cones. And these are cones that are designed not to open up until a fire burns through the forest. And typically that fire will kill the parent tree, but what it will do at the same time is uh, melt the resin that holds the cone scales together. And in the weeks that follow the fire, those scales open up, the seeds are released, and they fall on that nice nutritious bed of ash. And now there's very little plant competition there, right? A lot of, uh, most of it has been burned off. So there's lots of sunlight, a lot of water, a lot of nutrients. And these plants are set up to, you know, have a higher probability of uh, surviving. Uh, so it's part of their evolved strategy. Clearly this wouldn't happen if they didn't, uh, you know, evolve in an environment where fire was a regular occurrence. Okay, and then we have so-called fire following plants. Uh, these are herbaceous plants usually that uh, grow only in the first few years after fire. So imagine a dense chaparral stand, it burns. And the first year after that fire, suddenly all of these uh, wildflowers appear that weren't there before. Well, in actuality, they were there. They were there as seeds stored in, the, in a soil seed bank. And either the heat of the fire or the chemicals and the smoke from fire uh, stimulates their germination and allows them to start growing. And within about three years, they've flowered, uh, they've uh, set seed, and they've died off. And they have such a short lifespan because normally uh, in, in not much more time than that, the uh, shrub canopy of the chaparral will close over them, block the sunlight, and they just simply wouldn't be able to survive anyway. So these are plants that quite literally depend on fire to survive. Okay, so California, you know, we need to burn to uh, provide for their life cycle. Uh, similarly, we have a lot of other plants, including some of our most widespread trees, that while they may not depend on fire absolutely to reproduce, uh, they definitely have adaptations for dealing with it. So, for example, if you look at my left-hand photo here, uh, you can see a, a sprouting Pacific madrone tree. This is a tree that was uh, top killed by uh, the 2018 ranch fire. It looked completely dead uh, right after the fire, but uh, in, in the months that followed, it sprouted from structures below ground. Okay, these trees are designed to do this. 
Uh, the soil provides an insulating layer that protects those underground structures from damage uh, in the heat of fire. And uh, they have those dormant buds that can re-sprout. So one year after the fire, maybe these were three feet tall. Um, by the time we get out about eight years after a fire, these trees, sprouting trees might be 20 feet tall. Okay, so very rapid recovery because of those adaptations. And of course, everybody knows and loves uh, Coast Redwood. This is another tree that can sprout. And if you go down and look at the uh, Walbridge Fire burn area in Sonoma County, just burned earlier this summer, you'll see a lot of the redwood trees that were totally scorched are now sprouting in this way along their trunks. And we call this uh, epicormic sprouting. And uh, uh, redwoods are able to do this. So you can have a, a thousand year old redwood tree, uh, excuse me, that gets completely scorched. And you come back a few months later and it has this bottle brush look to it. Okay, as the new shoots start coming out. Uh, and within about five years or so, it's restored its canopy. So clearly, again, these uh, plants are adapted to regular fire. Uh, they've uh, you know, evolved with it over thousands of years. And then some of our other native trees, including the Douglas firs pictured here, uh, have very thick bark and that enables them to survive through fairly hot uh, surface fires. As long as these fires don't get up into the canopy and singe the needles, these things can have, uh, you know, countless surface fires burn under them, uh, reduce some of the shrubbery, the small trees around them. Uh, they may end up benefiting from that actually by the recycling of nutrients and the reduction of competition. Uh, but they, you know, they thrive on this. So fire is very much part of our, our ecosystem. Uh, I've seen some photos like this floating around on the internet and on social media. Uh, oftentimes they come with commentary uh, that will say something to the effect that, uh, look, this place has been nuked. All the trees are gone. And sometimes there's political commentary that goes along with that. They'll say something like, uh, oh, the Forest Service did this. They should have logged more or uh, they logged too much. Some people make that argument. Uh, well, the truth is that a lot of these photos are not of forest uh, communities, but rather of chaparral. And these are shrubs that are designed to burn off. You know, just about any fire is going to be catastrophic in the chaparral. And at the end of it, it'll look like nothing is alive out there. But you come back the next year and all of a sudden, all of those fire following wildflowers are there. And if you look closely here in the right hand photo, you'll see that some of those shrub skeletons are now sprouting. Okay, these things are coming back. And in this case, it's a plant called chemise. Here on the left in the foreground is what chemise chaparral looks like when it's mature. Uh, this is in the Cache Creek Wilderness area east of uh, Clear Lake. And this picture was taken a few years before the 2015 Rocky Fire. Well, if you went back right after that fire, it would have looked like a moonscape. But here's a photo from four years after that same fire. Okay, so much of the canopy has restored uh, by way of sprouting. So these plants are very well adapted to this. Many of these landscapes can rebound very quickly because of those adaptations. All right, so because California has this Mediterranean climate where we have very wet winters that stimulate lots of plant growth, followed by dry summers where that vegetation dries out, we are very predisposed to fire. All it takes is a, is a, is a spark uh, to get that dry vegetation going in the summer or early fall. And uh, historically, there has been no shortage of uh, ignition sources. Okay, on an average year, California has more than 60,000 lightning strikes. Okay, similarly, uh, before European settlement of California, uh, native peoples would regularly start fires for management purposes. 
that the scale at which they burned is quite remarkable. And I want to show you some uh, some data on this actually. But first, I'm going to uh, turn it over to Cat um, uh, Anderson, who's a professor at UC Davis, who uh, studies indigenous management of California uh, wildlands. And so she says, uh, fire was the most significant, effective, efficient, and widely employed vegetation management tool of California Indian tribes. Deliberate burning increased the abundance and density of edible tubers, grains, fruits, seeds, and mushrooms, enhanced feed for wildlife, controlled uh, the insect and diseases that could damage wild foods and basketry materials, increased the quantity and quality of material used for basketry and cordage, and encouraged the sprouts used for making household items, granaries, fish weirs, clothing, games, hunting and fishing traps, and weapons. It also removed dead material and promoted growth through the recycling of nutrients, decreased plant competition, and maintained specific plant community types. All right, did you guys get all of that? There's gonna be a quiz at the end. No, not really, but uh, clearly that's a lot of information there, a lot of reasons to uh, use prescribed fire. And she's only hit on the big ones here, actually. There are, there are still more. One scholar, in fact, uh, chronicled more than 70 different management purposes for using prescribed fire among California tribes. Okay, so they use fire a lot. And uh, as, as Anderson suggests, they uh, actually created and maintained certain plant communities that probably wouldn't exist otherwise. Okay, one example is the California coastal prairie. Okay, much of the California coastline is lined by these open grasslands. And in those areas where we've excluded both fire and livestock grazing, we've seen conversion of prairie to coastal scrub. Okay, which looks like the picture on the right here. And this is a photo I took at Point Reyes. And uh, this is an area where extensive areas of formal prairie have turned into scrub in the absence of fire. So presumably this is a landscape that was essentially created and maintained by indigenous burning. And we know actually that uh, they must've been doing this for thousands of years because the soils that are found under these prairies are the sort that would only form under uh, thousands of years of continuous grass cover. So uh, yeah, they've been doing this for a very long time and we see the legacy of indigenous management on the landscape today. Uh, Interestingly, too, if we look at the journals of early California explorers, uh, we find they often speak to the, the practice of uh, burning uh, coastal prairies and other plant communities. And here's one I'll call your attention to. This is from Father Juan Crespi. He was part of a uh, crew that came up the California coast in 1769. They left uh, San Diego sometime early in the year, and they reached uh, just south of the location of what is now San Francisco by early November. And at that point, they rode their horses inland over Sweeney Ridge to view San Francisco Bay. Okay, and this is a picture of that landscape today. Okay, now compare what you see in this photo with the way he describes it back in 19, or 1769. So he says, we went over some pretty high hills with nothing but soil and grass, but the grass all burnt off by the native people. And we shortly described from the height a large arm of the sea which was San Francisco Bay. So this is how we know the location. There's a plaque there uh, commemorating this, uh, you know, described it as the, as the discovery of SF Bay. In reality, of course, uh, native peoples lived here, lived here for thousands of years. And uh, they had maintained this area as coastal prairie. And in the absence of that indigenous burning, this area has converted to such dense coastal scrub that 
you couldn't ride a horse over Sweeney Ridge today without having the benefit of a trail or a road. Okay, so large-scale transformations happening here, uh, not by uh, too much fire, but actually by too little. And now, as you can probably imagine, if a fire gets started in that scrub, uh, being as dense and extensive as it is, it's much more likely to turn into a catastrophic fire that would threaten neighborhoods uh, than had it been maintained as coastal prairie. Our speaker today is Professor Chris Innick, who teaches ecology, field biology, soil science, and environmental science at Mendocino College and Sonoma State. His talk today is titled, Understanding Our New Wildfire Crisis, Can We Tame the Blazing Beast? Okay, same story for some of our oak woodlands, including uh, extensively across Mendocino County. Okay, so you look at the photo here, you see there's areas of forest and then these large islands of grassland and oak woodland. Uh, should look pretty familiar to those folks who live around here. Uh, this is another landscape that was maintained primarily by indigenous burning. Okay, if we take away the burning, Douglas fir trees and other evergreens start to seed in under the oak canopy, sometimes even way out into the grassland. And it looks fairly benign at first, but come back after 30 years, and all of a sudden, some of those Douglas fir trees are piercing up through the oak canopy. If enough of them do this, they can end up shading the oak trees and killing them. So this is a process of succession playing out in the absence of fire. Those uh, oak, oak woodlands and the savannas, the prairies, end up disappearing, and they turn into forests. The fact that they exist today is a legacy of indigenous burning. So another example of how the absence of fire in recent years has transformed landscapes and ultimately made them more likely to burn catastrophically. A uh, similar idea with mountain meadows. So here's a before and after picture of Yosemite Valley. Uh, not in our region, of course, but everyone's familiar with this place. Uh, notice in 1899, there was much more extensive meadows than there was 100 years later. Okay, removing that indigenous burning allowed the trees to start invading the meadows. And uh, some of the ancestors of the uh, uh, indigenous Californians who uh, had burned for, for uh, uh, centuries, for uh, millennia uh, even, have, have commented about the change in the landscape and often uh, not, not very favorably. So I'll turn it back over to uh, Kat Anderson. She describes this. She says, some native people displaced during Euro-American settlement returned to their homelands years after relocation only to find them overgrown and untended. Maria Labrado Iderte, granddaughter of Chief Tanaya of the Southern Sierra Miwok, returned to her beloved Yosemite after 78 years. She shook her head and said, too dirty, too much bushy. Okay, that probably gets the point across, but in case you wanted some elaboration, her great-grandson, James Russ, provides it uh, some years later. He says, in the old days, there used to be a lot more game, okay, as in deer, quail, gray squirrels, and rabbits. They burned to keep the brush down. The fires wouldn't get away from you. It would wouldn't take all the timber like it would now. I remember Yosemite when I was a kid. I can see from one end of the valley to the other. Now you can't even see off the road. Okay, notice he references uh, this idea of a fire starting today and taking all the timber, and that's the risk. Right? You put more fuel on the landscape, and when those fires get started, uh, they become much more intense and potentially uncontrollable. So the question I want to answer next is how much of the California landscape did these native tribes burn in a particular year? 
Okay, if you want to know how to restore those landscapes and keep them in a relatively fire resistant state, uh, you know, we may want to try to mimic what they used to do. And the way we can do this, even though there's no uh, written record available of this, is to look at tree rings. Okay, tree rings not only record the age of trees, they also record the presence of fires that were hot enough to burn through uh, areas of the bark. So you've all have no doubt uh, gone out to the redwood forest and seen uh, uh, trees that had these uh, burn scars, like what you see on the left here. Okay, the, the living tissue around that scar will begin to grow and try to heal over that scar and may even heal over it completely so you wouldn't see it from the outside. But if we take a cross section of that tree and look at the rings, you're gonna still see the, um, the former scars that are now buried in new wood. And if you look on the right-hand image, this is actually a cross section of a giant sequoia trunk. And you can see there are lots of fire scars there. And by counting uh, between successive scars, we can figure out roughly how long uh, there was between successive fires in that prehistoric landscape. And this example going back to the 1200s. So scientists have done this for uh, pretty basically all of our tree dominated communities in California. And they put together a fairly good record of uh, past fire going back uh, hundreds and in some cases more than a thousand years. And a paper in 2011 summarized all of that research and reported the median values, the midpoint values of all those studies for each individual uh, tree dominated community. So for example, redwood forests, they found on average were burning every 15 years. And Douglas fir mixed hardwood forest, they occur a little bit inland of the redwoods. Those are burning every 13 years. And then oak woodlands further inland yet, they're burning every 12 years. Okay, so imagine a situation where uh, just about every point on the landscape in our region is burning every 12 to 15 years. So it seems like the fires we've had lately have been massive, seems like an, an enormous quantity of fire. And yet when we start looking in the context of uh, how California burned in the past, uh, it starts to look like the last 100, 150 years was an anomaly. Like maybe there was a lot more fire in the past than uh, perhaps even we have now. And we don't actually have to guess here because some researchers in 2007 took that same fire return interval data uh, out of the literature and they extrapolated out to the, whole, the size of the whole state. Okay, basically multiplying those fire return intervals for each plant community by the area of each of those plant communities across the state. And their results are shocking, okay, simply shocking. So they estimate that on a typical year in prehistoric California, uh, something like four and a half million acres statewide would burn. Okay, you guys remember what the acres has burned this year? Yeah, it's exactly, uh, exactly that. Okay, roughly four and a half million acres. So it seems you know, crazy that we've had all this fire this year, but in terms of the scale of acreage burned, this is normal. Okay, looking at the broad scope of history in California, this is normal. Uh, the last hundred years, as I said, was anomalous. Okay, we suppress those fires and in the absence of those fires removing fuel, that fuel built up and now we have this ticking time bomb uh, lurking out there on that landscape. Okay, so in terms of acreage, what we're seeing today or, or this year is comparable to what we would have had in, in prehistoric California. Uh, that said, the nature of fires today are likely very different than they were in the past. 
Okay, so even though we're seeing the same area burn, uh, the nature of the fires today are much more destructive. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, for example, the fires that were started were started primarily in prehistoric California uh, were intentionally set mostly okay, by native Californians and under mild weather conditions in spring and fall. So when you're running fires in cool weather, they're not gonna burn as intensively and they're gonna do less damage. In fact, more likely they're gonna do a lot of ecological benefits. And that was the point. Uh, today, our fires are primarily started accidentally and at least those that get very large are burning primarily in hot summertime weather or during uh, strong wind offshore, offshore wind events in the fall. So very extreme conditions, you get very different uh, fire behavior. Uh, also, as I said, the fuel levels were very low back then because of uh, allowing those small fires to burn uh, regularly. And uh, today we have much more fuel on the landscape, so this drives much more intense fires. Okay, so what we need to do is bring the temperature down on those fires, lower the intensity, uh, but be burning a lot. Okay, burning a lot of acreage each year to keep, uh, keep those fuels down, provide the ecological benefits by burning uh, primarily in the cool season, the spring and the fall, and thereby in the process, reducing the intensity of those summertime fires and uh, keeping them in the range that firefighters can actually control, okay, like they used to. So to give you a sense of how much uh, fire suppression has led to an accumulation of fuels on the landscape, uh, look at these before and after photos. So this is the uh, Feather River Canyon in the Northern Sierra Nevada. You can see in 1890, the trees were quite widely spaced. Okay, it was a pretty sparse forest. Here's what it looked like 100 years later. Okay, now these trees are packed together. If we looked under the canopies at that point, you'd see there are a lot of young trees, a lot of shrubs, just an enormous amount of fuel. And this is a forest that is essentially waiting to burn catastrophically. And I'm sorry to say it did. Okay, about seven years after that second photo there was taken, the story fire raged through this area and scorched more than 50,000 acres. Okay, so it becomes pretty much inevitable when we get fuel loads uh, that high. Okay, which leads me to the concept of ladder fuels. Okay, if we're not regularly burning forests or otherwise thinning them, we get lots of young trees and shrubs that fill in that space between the uh, larger trees. As they start to grow up, they provide pathways by which surface fire can climb up into the canopies of the larger trees. Okay, and this can transform an ecologically beneficial surface fire into a destructive crown fire okay, that will spread from canopy to canopy and rage across the land, just like the fires we've been seeing in, in recent years. Okay, so this is where we are, are today. Okay, and the ecological effects of these two fires couldn't be more different. So here is the aftermath of a surface fire in a Douglas fir forest. You can see these uh, little sticks sticking up here. These were uh, young Douglas fir trees that were killed. But notice here that the mature trees, while they have black trunks, uh, they're still green and healthy. Okay, so this is an ecologically beneficial burn. The forest is more healthy today because of it. Now compare that to the photo on the right of a previously similar looking Douglas fir forest that was hit by a crown fire that killed almost all the trees. And now this whole system has to regenerate from seed. Okay, these are trees that don't resprout. So once they're killed, once they're top killed in a crown fire, the only way they have to come back is, is by way of seeds, growing into seedlings and saplings and you know, a 300-year-old Douglas fir tree is going to take at least 300 years to grow back. 
and there's no uh, no way around that. So these crowd, these ground fires do serious long-term damage, and uh, many of our non-sprouting trees, while they may be well adapted to surface fires, they are not adapted to crown fires. And I'll show you some more photos from our local area that illustrate this. So I'm very sorry to say that between the 2018 ranch fire and the uh, August complex fire this year, uh, tens of thousands of acres of montane conifer forest in Mendocino National Forest has been destroyed. Okay, not all of it. Now, there's still definitely some green areas and some areas that underburn and, and are, are more healthy today. Uh, but you go out there on the landscape and you see a lot of areas where uh, the trees were killed and they're gonna have to come back from seed. Again, a very, very slow process. So here's some photos from the Snow Mountain Wilderness, an area that was ravaged in 2018 by the ranch fire. And then up here is a photo uh, of Cobb Mountain area. I remember in 2015, that area was hit very hard by the Valley Fire. And uh, this killed 80% of the trees in Boggs Mountain State Forest. They followed it with salvage logging. And so what had been a beautiful forest is now today basically a brush field. And it's gonna take years and years for that to come back. And then below that, uh, in the Cache Creek Wildlife Area, this was a former Blue Oak Woodland. Uh, trees were killed in that fire. And again, uh, very slow recovery. Okay, so uh, many of our local plants and our native trees, I guess I should uh, emphasize, are well adapted to surface fire, but not to these severe crown fires that we're creating. And there's something else out there in the landscape that's not adapted to severe crown fires either. And that's our homes, okay, our homes and neighborhoods. So these same fires that do long-term ecological harm are also fires that threaten our neighborhoods. Okay, so both for the sake of people and nature, we want to tune down the temperature on these fires uh, and by preferably doing more prescribed burning in the cool season. Okay, so bottom line is that California has racked up a huge uh, wildfire debt from all of those years of fire suppression. The bill is now coming due and we're paying it back in interest. Okay, it could get ugly, but fortunately, there's a way we can work off some of that debt. Okay, and that's by mounting um, a large-scale fuel reduction program that emphasizes uh, prescribed fire. Okay, and the good news here is that we've got lots of local agencies and groups who are uh, already doing this on a small scale. Okay, they know how to do it. They can do it effectively and safely. They can even do it near homes. Okay, we're doing this in the cool season when the risk of fire escape is uh, relatively minor. Uh, if there's a, an excess of fuel out there, we can go out and mechanically thin it first. So we have various ways to keep control of those fires. And then bringing that back to the landscape, we can, again, tune down the temperature on some of those summertime fires that now threaten our homes. Okay, so let's talk about one of the, what one of these fuel reduction uh, projects would look like. Okay, this is not the same as a traditional commercial logging operation. Okay, we're not going to go out there and cut down all the big trees. Okay, in fact, the big trees are the most fire resistant and they provide a degree of fire resistant to the whole ecosystem by way of shading the forest floor. Okay, in the process, they keep the, the litter cooler, they keep it more moist and that makes it less flammable. And the shading also reduces the growth of those ladder fuels. So if, if we have a, shade, a shaded canopy of older trees, it's going to uh, reduce the frequency with which we have to go out there and manage that landscape. Okay, so ideally, we're going to go out there if the, if the ladder fuels are dense initially, mechanically cut out some of them, and then follow up with a, a prescribed fire. 
okay, to, to eliminate the, uh, or at least thin back the litter and reduce the slash that might be left over. And the resulting forest is gonna look something like this. Okay, so in our area, this is kind of what we wanna shoot for. And it does depend on your management goals. It depends on, uh, you know, the natural fire regime of the particular region we're talking about. So if we were looking at the uh, temperate rainforest, the Pacific Northwest, right, this model wouldn't apply. Uh, but in our local area, you know, something like this done every 10 or 15 years uh, should be what we're shooting for today. And that would match the indigenous management in the past and get us back to that relatively fire resistant landscape. Okay, similar idea in, the, in our local oak woodlands, okay, where we have these Douglas fir that are invading, uh, probably have to go in there and cut some of these out initially to bring down the fuel loads. If you try to run a prescribed fire through this now, the heat will likely damage the oak trees above it. Uh, but if we you know, cut down the larger of those Douglas firs, run a fire through it, in the end, it'll look like this. Okay, you can see these are all young Douglas firs that were killed by a fire that ran through this area earlier. And these photos came from Redwood National Park, by the way, where they're doing large scale uh, oak woodland restoration like this and using prescribed fire to maintain prairies and oak woodlands. Okay, just like native peoples have, have done for a long time. So uh, the goal is to bring some of that back. Okay, so in the process of establishing this large scale fuel management program, uh, we're going to increase the total amount of fire on the landscape while simultaneously reducing its potential for doing damage, okay, by moving fires out of the summer and into the cooler parts of the year, okay, when they're less likely to burn intensely and do a lot of damage. Uh, in the process, we restore a more beautiful, fire-resistant, and wildlife-friendly uh, landscape. Uh, we're going to eventually shift some of the spending we're putting on fire suppression, which is growing incrementally year by year, by the way. Okay, we've never spent more on fighting wildfires than we do now uh, because of the combination of that fuel accumulation and drought and warm cli warming climate. Uh, these fires are just more intense than they used to be. Uh, but in the long run, as we bring those fuels down, we, we can expect to spend less on fire suppression and eventually we're likely to net save uh, money. Okay, in the short term, we've got to open our wallets a little bit, make that investment, uh, but we have a pretty good bet it's going to pay off in the long run. Okay, and, and guess what else? In the process, we're going to create a lot of good jobs, okay, reliable long-term jobs. So some of these firefighters that might have work in the summer months during the fire season, they could be out there doing fuel reduction projects during the cool season. And uh, in, in our area, our rural economies have done fairly poorly in the, in the modern economy, and this would create jobs exactly where we need them. And in the process, we'd also be reconnecting people to nature, okay, getting more people out there on the landscape, managing it. Uh, you might remember uh, years ago, so those of you who are old enough to remember the owls versus jobs debate, okay, that was a big thing around here a while back. In this case, we can restore the forest and create jobs at the same time, okay, so it's kind of a win-win, but we do have to be willing to spend a little money up front to make that investment but again, we're going we're gonna to save more money in the long run uh, if we do this. So I hope you'll join me in trying to make our landscape great again. Our speaker today is Professor Chris Innick, who teaches ecology, field biology, soil science, and environmental science at Mendocino College and Sonoma State. His talk today is titled, Understanding Our New Wildfire Crisis, Can We Tame the Blazing Beast? So that's one part of our story, one major part of our story. 
Okay, the second part of our story that I want to spend the balance of our time talking about is climate. Okay, it turns out that wildfire behavior is extremely sensitive to temperature and moisture. And we can see that in this graph right here. So let me explain uh, uh, how this works. So on the vertical axis, you're looking at average precipitation in a year. Uh, this is across all of California. So what was the average rainfall across all of California? And then down here on the horizontal axis, we're looking at the average warm season temperature. So how warm was it during the warm part of the year uh, during the fire season, in other words. And each dot on this map shows the combination of rainfall and temperature for a particular year, for one particular year. And then they've added in by boxing them or putting diamonds around them, some indication of what the worst uh, wildfire years were. Okay, so they show the 10 largest wildfire years and the 10 most destructive wildfire years. Okay, notice how those record holding years concentrate in the lower right quadrant of this uh, diagram. Okay, these are the years that are both warm and dry. Okay, that combination of heat and drought has a synergistic impact on fire behavior. It dramatically magnifies it. Okay, and it's not terribly surprising why that would happen. Okay, it's simply a function of fuel aridity. If it's warmer, we get more evaporation. That dries out the vegetation. If there's less rain, there's less moisture in the soil. Fire season is longer, more potential to have those intense fires. So we see this nice linear relationship between fuel aridity and forest fire area, annual forest fire area. And for those of you who are privy to statistics, this R square value of 0 0.74 is telling us that roughly 70, 74% of the year-to-year -year variability in uh, forest fire area across, across the West in this case is a function of fuel aridity, okay? So it explains about three quarters of that variation. So this is a very, very powerful factor when it comes to uh, driving our annual variation in wildfire behavior, okay? And it again is a function of moisture and temperature. When we have droughts that line up with hot summers, we get the recipe for extreme fire behavior. Okay, especially when we have all that excess fuel on the landscape. And you might say, well, we've always had you know, hot summers, we always had droughts, what's the difference now? Well, the difference is it's getting warmer. On the left here, you're looking at an average temperature graph for all of California. You can see the 11 year running average here shows a steady ascent, okay? It's getting warmer statewide. Uh, here's what it looks like in terms of summer nighttime temperatures uh, locally in Ukiah. So over the last 100 years, believe it or not, July nights have warmed about six degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, remember back to that graph I showed you? When uh, temperatures go up just one or two or three degrees, we see this explosion of fire behavior. Well, you know, we've gotten that kind of warming. Okay, we have uh, moved up the background temperature enough at this point that whenever we have droughts, we're pretty much destined to have this extreme record-breaking wild, uh, wildfire behavior, okay? Particularly, again, if we have all those fuel, all the excess fuel out there on that landscape. So we're combining all of these factors and each of them individually is contributing to the problem and together they're having uh, huge impacts. Okay, so why did this come on so suddenly? Okay, I, I showed you the uh, image early on, the graph of uh, burn area across California. And there was a little bit of an increase, but then in, in our area, especially at uh, 
ticked up very quickly after 2015. Uh, and I think what happened there is that we actually had rainfall, average rainfall that was going up slowly over time until the early 2000s. So for the second half of the 20th century in our region, rainfall was going up and partially offsetting the drying effects of the warming. So if you have natural factors pushing in one way, um, human factors pushing in the, uh, in the other, they kind of balance themselves out. Okay, well now that we plunge into this historic drought, we have the warmer temperatures combining with the lower rainfall, and now we have that synergistic, synergistic uh, increase in wildfire behavior. And to give you an idea, nine of the last 13 years have brought below average rain to our region. So we've had a lot of dry years. Uh, 2013 in particular was the driest calendar year on record okay, in Ukiah. And uh, the way things are shaping up, if we don't get some rain here uh, this month, 2020 might actually beat it. So on the rainfall front, things are looking pretty scary right now. We want to get some more rain to uh, uh, get us out of the situation we've been in. But I want to do a comparison here now of uh, this past year, this past uh, rain season, to the last time we had conditions this dry in Ukiah. And that was the uh, winter of 1976 and 77. So you have to go back a whole generation. And here's a comparison of the rainfall in those two winters. You can see they're very, very close. We had a little bit more this year. Uh, some of other communities in the region did a little better than Ukiah did uh, this year. So it's not quite as severe a drought in some other areas, but these are pretty close in severity. Now compare the temperature. Okay, this year, we were more than three degrees warmer on average than we were in 1976 or 1977, I should say. So you're adding in that extra heat, driving more evaporation, and that in turn is, uh, is magnifying uh, wildfire behavior. Okay, so we're dealing with a different reality uh, than we were uh, a generation ago, the last time we had a drought this severe. Hey, it's just that much warmer, and uh, that's making the vegetation much more prone to burning. All right, so you might ask, well, specifically how much worse has it made it? Well, there was a paper that came out earlier this year that attempted to quantify it. And what they did was to go out and do tree ring studies all across the Southwestern US, including in California. Okay, the way they defined it, California and Oregon are part of the Southwestern US. And uh, they compared the growth of the annual growth of tree rings to soil moisture in recent years and then uh, extrapolated back actually more than a thousand years uh, by making a correlation between uh, the width of rings and the dryness of the soil in recent years. And so they're able to reconstruct past soil moisture based on that modern correlation. And then they took that data and uh, looked to see if we've had droughts this severe in the past, in the last 1200 years. And it turned out the last time we had a drought this bad was uh, almost 500 years ago. In fact, this is, this is the second worst drought, it turns out, in the last 1,200 years. Uh, pretty remarkable. And then they wondered, well, how much of the drought severity now is due to the warmer climate? Okay, obviously part of it is due to low rainfall, but we're magnifying the drought by way of warmer temperatures. So then they turn to climate models to figure that out. Okay, and these are pretty predictable relationships. Okay, we know how temperature affects evaporation. We know how uh, you know, rainfall affects soil moisture. So if we have some computational power as a computer would provide, uh, we, can, we can predict these things pretty well with pretty high degree of accuracy. And so they determine 
that in the absence of the global warming we've experienced so far, this recent drought would have only been the 11th worst in the last 1200 years. But because of that additional warming, it is now the second worst. And overall, it made the severity of soil drought almost twice as bad. Okay, so this is a big impact. It's easy to think that, well, you know, two to three degrees, you know, what's the big deal? Uh, to us in our everyday lives, doesn't seem like a big thing, but to the degree of evaporation happening out there on the landscape, drying out the vegetation, this is a huge deal. Okay, we've really stacked the deck in favor of larger wildfires. A couple other scary findings from that study. They find that the 20th century was the wettest century in that 1200 year record. So uh, we've essentially developed the West, built our communities around an assumption of there being more water than there historically has been. Okay, even if we discount the temperature effects. So it's quite possible that in the future, we're gonna have less water to work with than we have historically. And even more scary, at least from my perspective, is that they found that some of these big droughts of the past, they call mega droughts, have actually gone on for nearly a century. So if we're in one of those situations where we're gonna be in drought conditions for another 50, 60, 70, 80 years, we could be dealing with this fire situation for that long, uh, particularly if we're not very good about getting out there and uh, reducing the fuels on the landscape and uh, curbing our greenhouse emissions and preventing uh, continued warming. So we really have ourselves in a pickle at this point and uh, that's a lot of bad news, but I've got one more bit of bad news for you. And that is that the climate model suggests that our rainfall is likely to become increasingly concentrated in the winter months. So we'll end up getting probably less rain in the fall and spring and more rain in the winter months when you know, things are already wet. And uh, that means a longer fire season. And it's already meant that our fire season ex is extending further into the fall, which allows it to overlap with the offshore wind season. Okay, and no doubt, remember in recent years, we've had a lot of these very strong wind events in the fall. And if they hit before the first rain hits and there's a spark, if there's an ignition source out there, we can get these really destructive fires. So uh, this is a pretty scary trend and the models suggest it could get worse. All right, so that's the bad news. So to kind of put this all together, the way I like to think about this is to think that we have essentially uh, two dimmer switches that we can operate. Okay, one dimmer switch relates to the level of wildfire fuels out on the landscape. And the other dimmer switch relates to the temperature okay, and as a function of atmospheric greenhouse gases. And, uh, you know, ideally we want to have both of these things turned down because it will result in relatively low sever severity fire behavior. And if you go back 250 years ago, back when indigenous Californians were doing their regular burning of the landscape, they were both set in a low position. Okay, we had very low fuel uh, levels in the landscape and we had low temperatures. This is before we were uh, you know, burning fossil fuels. Today, we've amped up the fuels to high. Okay, we've got a lot of fuel out there on the landscape after a hundred years of fire suppression and our temperature is clearly going up, uh, but there's a lot of upward potential left. Okay, if we continue, uh, you know, continue with our use of fossil fuels, um, it's going to keep getting warmer. So there's a lot of upshot potentially uh, here remaining. So you combine very high uh, fuel levels with moderately high temperatures. We get moderately high fire risk. Uh, and believe it or not, things could get even worse. Okay, If we continue with the status quo, 
and we continue not treating those fuels on a larger scale, we continue using fossil fuels and building up those atmospheric greenhouse gas concentrations, the fire situation could get even worse. Okay, especially if we are in one of those very long-term uh, mega droughts. So it really behooves us to get moving on this, okay, both on the fuels end of the equation and on the climate end of the equation. So what I would imagine as the scenario we would follow, the optimum pathway is to very quickly bring down the fuels, okay, by getting out there every year and doing mechanical thinning, prescribed fire, and simultaneously rapidly bringing down our greenhouse emissions. Okay, unfortunately, at least in the near term, we're not going to be able to uh, cool the temperature of the earth down. Okay, we're not gonna be able to make it cooler. Whatever uh, CO2 we've already emitted in the atmosphere is going to stay there trapping heat until we can come up with a system for large scale CO2 removal. And that will probably be decades away yet, unfortunately. So we are very likely to see the temperature continue to go up at least for a while, even if we start moving ourselves off fossil fuels very quickly. So the way we balance that out and improve the fire situation is only if we can remove fuel off the landscape fast enough to more than compensate for that increase in, uh, in temperature. Okay, so we've got, we've got a big job on both ends. Okay, we've got to move very quickly on both ends to avoid this scenario of very, very severe wildfire behavior. So I'm gonna say a few things about the greenhouse gas end of this equation. So uh, uh, the good news here is that uh, Sonoma Clean Power, which is the default electricity provider for uh, most of Mendocino and Sonoma counties, is now delivering 97% carbon-free electricity. So if you're a Sonoma Clean Power customer, you are, you're getting almost carbon-free electricity right now. And that kind of changes that dynamic on uh, the best way for you as an individual citizen to, to reduce your carbon footprint. It means that anything you're using electricity to power doesn't have very big a carbon footprint anymore. And I did an analysis with my daughter recently. She, uh, about a month ago, gave a talk about climate change to her fourth grade class. And uh, we did an analysis using the uh, cool climate calculator, which UC Berkeley has. This is a carbon footprint analysis. It's fun to play around with it and see uh, uh, how changes to your lifestyle will change your footprint. And I wanna show you a couple scenarios. I don't have enough time to go through a lot of them here, but so let's imagine that you decided you wanted to be green and you decided you wanted to uh, recycle, you wanted to conserve water and energy as much as possible. You wanted to change all of your light bulbs to LEDs. You planted a bunch of trees in your backyard and you put solar panels on your roof. Okay, if you did all those things, you'd probably feel like you were doing pretty good. Okay, and you would put a dent in your footprint. Okay, that would reduce it by about 10%. Okay, and I kind of been using uh, uh, sort of average conditions, an average household um, is what I'm, I'm modeling in this case. So in that scenario, you would, lose, you would reduce your footprint by close to 10%. Okay, compare that though, to the benefit of switching to electric cars. Okay, to going from typical trucks or SUVs to electric cars. Okay, running on that 97% carbon-free electricity. Okay, doing that alone has four times the benefit of doing all of those other things. So I, I think it's great if you wanna do all those other things, but clearly the, the uh, you know, room for improvement is, really in the transportation sector. 
Okay, for most of us in this area, being a rural place where you have to do a lot of driving, um, it ends up being transportation ends up being the, the biggest component of our footprints. And so moving people into electric cars is really where we have to go. Okay, so the state fortunately is moving in that direction. The auto industry is moving in that direction. Some countries are, are banning them coming up actually. So I think we're at the cusp of an era of electric car transportation, but the sooner you can get into an electric car, the better, because uh, this is gonna make a difference. Okay, a similar thing with our households. A lot of us have in our households, either uh, natural gas hookups or propane. Okay, and uh, last year we actually finally cut our ties with natural gas or with propane, I guess I should say. We got rid of our propane tank and uh, we now have all electric appliances. And I think a lot of people have this idea that electric appliances are, are kind of lousy, they're kind of cheap, uh, but modern electric appliances are not. Okay, they're top of the line now. As an example, our um, induction cooktop that we replaced last year will boil water in literally half the time of our former propane stove. So these things are top notch. And our electric heat pump, heating and air conditioning system is whisper quiet, it's wonderful. So there definitely are good alternatives for uh, 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 gas powered appliances and homes now. It's just a matter of uh, hopefully getting the government in there to provide some incentives to do this, to lower the cost. Obviously, if you have a good uh, home heating system, there is a cost associated with replacing it. Um, but if we can get the government involved to provide some rebates to do that, uh, that's gonna be very helpful because ultimately we need to, to wean our households off fossil fuels. And then uh, third thing I would uh, recommend, highly recommend uh, when they come back, and I hope they do, is uh, take part in climate strikes. Hey, remember last year, the uh, kids organized these movements. Uh, my, my wife, daughter, and I took part in some of these. And this is how political change happens. Okay, we know this from uh, looking at history. Uh, Professor Erica Chenoweth at Harvard has shown actually in her research that if you can get three and a half percent of the population in the streets at one time, that it pretty much guarantees that uh, political leaders will respond to the demands of the activists. Okay, so this really can drive change. And I hope once we get beyond COVID that uh, the kids start organizing these again. And I, for one, uh, will be happy to be out there in the streets with them again. Um, anyway, I'm going to stop there. I will tune out. Thank you all and uh, have a good holiday. You've been listening to Understanding Our New Wildfire Crisis, Can We Tame the Blazing Beast? A Mendocino College Symposium Lecture by Chris Innick. You can find more information about the Mendocino College Symposium, the slides that accompany this talk, and a list for further reading at www.mendocino.edu symposia. Thank you for listening.